Philadelphia streets are pretty nasty. They're dirty, dark, and often dangerous. The city is growing, but its growth means smaller and more crowded streets. There's mud and dust, foul-smelling piles and puddles. The streets reflect the weak government, the reliance on the money and power of the wealthy few, and a growing gap between the haves and the have-nots. Add into the mix a near-constant war with sailors and soldiers abroad in the streets. There is innovation and prosperity, but there's also inequity and poverty. It's the very special chaos of Philadelphia in the 1700s. This is Found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present. Because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Almond. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself right here in the city of brotherly love. This is the second in a series about the history of Philadelphia's streets. In the first episode, we covered why streets are important. We looked at the Native American legacy in our streets, and we revisited the earliest days of Philadelphia when our future street grid was being staked out on the ground. Before we get on with the story, I wanted to let you know about a new way you can support the podcast and help out your favorite independent bookstore at bookshop.org. First, go to the Found in Philadelphia podcast bookstore at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash found in Philly. There you can shop for books that inspired the podcast. Before you check out, don't forget to choose a bookstore at the top of your screen. Bookshop.org will give 10% of your order to the podcast and 10% to the bookstore of your choice. Check it out at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash found in Philly. Thank you. If you haven't listened to the first episode in this series, you missed a primer on the importance of our city streets. So here's a quick review of some of the key points about streets that we'll cover in this episode. It's the 1700s and things are just getting started in Philadelphia. We'll talk a lot about the growth of the early city and what the streets were like, their construction, how they functioned, how they were controlled and contested, and how they exposed inequality in colonial Philadelphia. We'll also look at early innovations in civic government that try to improve the streets, but not necessarily make them more equal. In the last episode, we left Penn in 1684, feeling a sense of pride in the work that had been accomplished in the first year of the colony. His surveyors had staked out the basic outline of the street grid of the two square miles of the new city of Philadelphia. He claimed that his 600 settlers had cleared land and built over 100 houses. And Penn himself had written the laws that would govern the new colony. But things started to fall apart pretty much right away. There's a lot of pushback against Penn's powers. And William Penn had to leave to fight off Lord Baltimore's claims on his colony. In fact, Penn would be absent from the colony for most of his life, except for a few years. In his absence, Penn's secretary, James Logan, and later three of Penn's sons would carry out the wishes of the proprietor in Pennsylvania. Despite the political infighting, Penn's liberal immigration laws, 
principles of religious tolerance, and peaceful relations with the Lenape helped make the colony of Pennsylvania a success. Europeans came from England and Germany, Wales and France, practicing a wide range of beliefs. During the 1680s, civic improvements focused on the wharves along the Delaware and the public market, which ran down the center of High Street from 2nd to 3rd Streets. The market house served as the center of both civic and commercial life and would later give High Street its current name, Market Street. Transatlantic trade was going to drive the future economy of Philadelphia, so they needed to develop the infrastructure for a top-tier port with convenient markets. Street clearing and maintenance was the responsibility of individual landowners. There was no centralized system for building the city's streets. Everyone had to pitch in. There was a lot of hard work to do in early Philadelphia. So who was doing all of this work? Well, like many other English colonies, Philadelphia was built with bonded and slave labor done by a distinct underclass of colonial society, enslaved Africans, and white indentured servants. Though they often worked side by side, these laborers held very different places in society. Soon after Penn sailed away in 1684, another ship arrived with people who would help shape the new city. The ship was the Isabella, the first slave ship to arrive in the new colony. The 150 enslaved Africans on board were bought by the white settlers. Though Africans had been forced to work in the Delaware Valley before the ship arrived, this was the first time that a large number of enslaved people were brought into Philadelphia to be sold. They arrived at a critical time when the settlers were eager for labor to clear trees for the streets and house lots of Philadelphia. The Africans suffered in the cold winters and many would run away. But more enslaved Africans were forced into labor throughout the 1700s, and they soon became part of the backbone of the colonial labor force. At the height of slavery in Philadelphia in the 1760s, enslaved Africans numbered 1,500, with an estimated 150 more free black residents. Altogether, they made up about 8% of the city's population. Philadelphia's labor force also included indentured servants. In Pennsylvania, these were mostly white, mostly poor men of German or Scotch-Irish descent who volunteered to board a ship to their chosen destination. Throughout the 1700s, indentured servants made up between 25 to 50% of the bonded and enslaved labor force in Philadelphia. In exchange for the cost of their passage, indentured servants agreed to work for an employer for a set number of years. On average, this was for five to seven years, though it could be much longer for children. At the end of that time, the indentured servant was released from his contract and was owed freedom dues. These might have been in the form of land in the early years or later in money. There's no doubt that indentured servants' lives were extremely hard and restrictive. They performed the same backbreaking labor that was demanded of the enslaved. But as white people, they had legal rights and a guarantee of eventual freedom for themselves and their children, something which set them far apart from the enslaved black population. By 1700, Philadelphia's population of settlers, enslaved Africans, and indentured servants has been estimated to be just below 2,500. These people were mostly clustered along the first four blocks from the Delaware River, from current-day Arch to Spruce Streets. 
There were a few relatively small, early wharves along the low shores of the Delaware, with stairs leading up to the city streets on higher ground above. Philadelphia would have felt like a country town then. Streets were unpaved and there were no sidewalks. At the south end of the city, Dock Creek was still a waterway, winding its way through the city to Market Street. Beyond were forests, areas cleared for grazing cattle, and scattered Native American communities. But Philadelphia wasn't going to look like this for long. Over the coming decades, the population of Philadelphia would grow 10 times over, hitting over 30,000. But the number of houses and the number of blocks settled didn't keep up with population growth. If the city footprint had expanded 10 times, residents should have been settled well into West Philadelphia. Instead, the settlement barely grew past 7th Street in the 1700s. This means that the tenfold growth of Philadelphia's population was crammed into the blocks along the Delaware. At the time of the revolution, Philadelphia's residents were living much, much closer together and in homes that held many more people. Let's bring urban studies professor Michael Kahn from Stanford University back into the conversation. The development of the city was much denser which was somewhat of a undermining of William Penn's plan for the city. He had intended, you know, it to be this open country town where everyone would live on these large parcels of land. And as soon as people started settling there, they began to settle much more densely around the Delaware Riverfront because it was the better port. Very few people wanted to live west of what would be 4th or 5th Street because it would be too far to walk. This population density impacted both the physical and social character of Philadelphia's streets. First, let's tackle how this density changed the way streets looked. In order for the city to accommodate the growing population, the original large city blocks were divided up into smaller and smaller lots. Those one-acre lots began to be subdivided and broken up and cut through with little alleys. So the streets, as they were envisioned, really never took off from the beginning. And undoubtedly, that also would have shaped the experience of the street. Typically, the larger, wealthier residences fronted the main streets, while alleyways and courts were created within the block to give access to smaller, often rental properties at the back of the wealthier homes. This created the lacework of alleyways you find in neighborhoods like Old City and Society Hill. It was common for the rich and poor to live very close to each other on the same block. But this doesn't mean that society was integrated. There was a very clear hierarchy. The density of Philadelphia's population also had an impact on the social life of Philadelphia's streets. About a third to a quarter of Philadelphia's population was made up of laboring families, those who relied on low-wage jobs for both men and women, but often failed to make ends meet. The working classes lived in very cramped quarters indeed. Only one in ten owned their homes. Most families rented the small wooden houses that averaged less than 20 feet wide and 20 feet deep in size. These houses were smaller than the kitchens of wealthy Philadelphians. And many of these workers needed to take in paying work in their homes, like washing or sewing piecework. They also rented out lodging to boarders or doubled up with other families in order to afford the rent. 
The lives of the working classes overflowed onto the streets. People in these crowded blocks had to get their water at public, hand-driven pumps located in the streets. They hung their washing up to dry above the alleyways and courts. There simply wasn't room indoors. It's clear that a great deal of work was being done in the streets. In the 1760s, the city streets were often blocked by, quote, casks, cases, grindstones, carriages, brick, limestone. In such small quarters where both men and women had to work to pay the bills, the street became a necessary extension of the home economy. The streets outside of the home may also have been the only place to go to have any privacy. It was certainly the only place where groups could gather. This was particularly problematic on Sundays, which was deemed to be a day of religious observance and rest. The elites of the city expected the Sabbath to be properly observed by religious services, and maybe some respectable walking and socializing in the streets. But Sundays were the one day in the week that was free of labor for many in the city, especially for the city's labor force of enslaved Africans, free black people, and white indentured servants. And by all accounts, they made the most of it. The elite described these gatherings as tumultuous and disorderly. Complaints were made repeatedly to city council, and from the 1720s onward, laws were passed to restrict the public gathering of free and enslaved black people, children, and white indentured servants, especially on Sundays. All of these forms of control failed. Neither social controls on acceptable behavior or legal control over these, quote, tumults could stop this desire to be together. In the streets and in the fields on the edges of town, they would gather together to find community on their one free day. They'd make music, play games, barter and exchange goods, and socialize in ways that were considered rowdy and noisy by the respectable members of society. So what did the streets of Philadelphia look like during all of this growth? So one thing we know about the colonial era street is that it was very dirty, especially by the standards that we might have today. And that was so for a number of reasons. A lot of them were not paved. They were just dirt streets, so they would have turned to mud when it rained. There was a lot of waste, animal waste. You can kind of imagine there were pigs and goats in the city. They were wandering the streets, feeding on different kinds of garbage. And the city government really didn't have a lot of resources to really do very much about this. Philadelphia's streets and alleys were a constant source of grumbling in the 1700s. In the early years of the city, residents were required to keep the streets in front of their houses swept clean. But in 1712, residents were also responsible for paving or laying gravel in the street from the front of their houses to the middle of the street. If you've ever walked around Philadelphia after a snowstorm, when residents are responsible for clearing their own sidewalks, you can imagine what this was like. Not everyone had the same idea about paving and cleaning, and that made getting around an extremely messy and unpleasant business. Some wealthier homes and the better merchant stores had sidewalks and paved streets in front of them, but most of the city had dirt streets with little or no drainage. So there were billowing clouds of dust and dry weather and thick rivers of mud when wet. If you opened your windows in nice dry weather, the inside of your home would soon be covered in road dust. Also, there was no regular trash collection. So waste and liquids just got dumped in the streets. And this was not nice stuff. 
In the 1740s, residents regularly threw their, quote, dirt and filth into the public street. It was noted that where there were drainage ditches, they were full of up to two or three feet of muck, including cast-off felt and leather, as well as butchered animal parts. In the 1760s, it was noted that some homes had accumulated, quote, banks of earth or rubbish in front of their lots. Liquid and grease from leather producers, soap makers, and distillers called foul and stinking liquors were dumped in the streets where they could contaminate public water wells. Between the overcrowded living conditions and the lack of basic sanitation, it's been estimated that the death rate for white city residents was three times higher than that of those living in rural areas. And for the city's enslaved black population, the death rate was more than four times higher than white people living in the country. And if this was what streets were like during the day, what were the streets like at night? Philadelphia streets had very little street lighting for much of the 18th century. Just as with paving and trash removal, Philadelphia relied on its residents to provide street lighting on their buildings at night. Privately funded street lighting was loosely organized in some areas, but must have been patchy at best. A lantern was lit by candles, which would be a considerable expense. And these candles were typically made from cheaper animal fat. They had to be tended every half hour or so to keep them properly lit. And these lights would have provided a very limited circle of light that only showed you a small patch of your surroundings. Beyond that was the darkness. It's hard for us as modern humans, surrounded by artificial light, to truly imagine the absolute darkness of Philadelphia streets in the 1700s. Most people made sure to be indoors after nightfall. Philadelphia's dark streets were patrolled by a citizen-led night watch as early as 1700. Every man was supposed to participate. The single night watch for the entire town was expanded five years later when Philadelphia was divided into 10 wards. Each ward was to be patrolled by its own watchman every evening. These watchmen had to carry their own light source, which would have provided a small pool of light in a sea of darkness. In between his rounds, the watchman would take shelter in a small wooden hut, just big enough for one person, which were set on the street corner. I'm sure no one looked forward to their turn at night. The volunteer night watch system was ripe for abuse, and several notable names like Shippen, Carpenter, and Claypool were fined for not taking their turn on the night watch. Despite the night watch, the streets seemed to be becoming less safe in the late 1740s and 50s. The British Empire was at war, and this colonial outpost in Philadelphia was drawn into its defense over the objections of its Quaker leaders. Philadelphia's port was busy supplying ships to fight against the Spanish. And later, Philadelphia served as a strategic hub for British soldiers. They would be garrisoned here before they headed inland to fight the French, and allied Native American groups along the Pennsylvania frontier. The city attracted large numbers of notoriously drunken and disorderly soldiers and sailors as the battles ebbed and flowed. The small shipping port was becoming a cosmopolitan town and the streets were getting more dangerous at night. So Philadelphia streets in the years before the American Revolution were crowded, muddy, or dusty, full of foul waste and dark while having very little enforcement during wartime conditions. Why didn't someone do something? A big part of the problem in early Philadelphia was the weak city charter that William Penn had granted to Philadelphia during his last visit to the colony in 1701. 
This charter was an antiquated medieval form of city government that handicapped future efforts to improve public spaces, especially for the unsexy things such as streets. The way the charter was written, the city depended upon the much stronger legislative body, the Pennsylvania Assembly, to implement civic changes. The Assembly held the purse strings and created legislation. At this point, Philadelphia had limited power to tax residents to fund the many public projects needed for a growing city. Streets as a public space are in part a product of taxation. And you want to think about the streets as a public resource, you're always thinking about how much do people want to pay in taxes, how much are they willing to pay, who pays, and how is that distributed. I know that none of us likes to pay taxes, but the dismal state of the streets in 18th century Philadelphia is a reminder of what happens when a city has no money and no power to invest in basic infrastructure. There has been a lot written about the political fights from this period. For the purposes of understanding Philadelphia's streets, the main issue was that every time the city wanted to do anything, it had to go and ask the Pennsylvania Assembly. The Assembly typically passed limited legislation for specific projects, rather than grant the city any real authority for ongoing work or maintenance. It was an impractical and inefficient system that left the colonial city consistently underfunded. Often, wealthy merchants helped keep city improvements going, particularly for work along the wharves, which was critical for business. But their contributions were often pretty self-serving. Lotteries were also common, but frowned upon, especially by the Quakers, who saw them as a form of gambling. But sales of lottery tickets funded the paving of many streets, including North 2nd Street, which was one of the first city streets to be consistently paved. Residents saw slow and unequal civic projects that often ground to a halt once funds ran out. In an era of weak and underfunded civic government, there was a lot of room for the likes of a Benjamin Franklin. From his position as clerk and later London agent of the powerful Pennsylvania Assembly, Franklin advocated for basic city services for Philadelphia. Franklin may be the only founding father who was a true urbanist. He helped write and pass legislation that improved lighting, established an organized night watch, and regulated uniform paved streets. This was in addition to his efforts to organize the city's first military defense and the first fire company, hospital, library, and college. Where the city failed, Franklin stepped into the breach. One of Franklin's early legislative successes was in 1751, when the assembly passed his act for the improvement and funding for Philadelphia streets. The act was, quote, for the better regulating the nightly watch within the city of Philadelphia and for enlightening the streets, lanes, and alleys. This act was considered important, not only to prevent crime, but also to provide an early alarm in case of fire. The act established wardens of the city. Wardens were elected by the city's freeholders, who were all white and male with either wealth or significant land holdings. The wardens were responsible for installing, quote, a sufficient and convenient number of lamps, and to contract with lamplighters who would handle the lighting, trimming, snuffing, supplying, maintaining, and repairing of the lamps. These street lamps were different than the earlier candle-lit lanterns. These lamps were fueled by whale oil, now being refined by the whaling industry in New England. This provided a cleaner, whiter light. By the 1760s, over 300 street lamps had been installed. 
Based on the 1762 skull map of Philadelphia, if the streetlights were evenly distributed, each block would have only had about three or four streetlights. It's likely that streetlights were concentrated along the main streets and civic buildings, such as the market houses and the state house. Much of the city streets and many of its alleys were lucky to have had one light. The elected wardens were also responsible for organizing a professional system for keeping an eye on the streets at night. The night watchmen were organized into 17 beats. They carried staves for protection and were on duty from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. in summer and 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. in winter. On the hour, the night watchman walked his beat, ringing his bell and crying out the time and the weather. The watchman had the power to detain anyone who was up to no good, but they couldn't officially arrest anyone. After returning from England in 1762, Franklin influenced the Pennsylvania Assembly to pass one of the first comprehensive acts for, quote, regulating, pitching, paving, and cleansing the highways, streets, lands, and alleys within the inhabited and settled parts of the city of Philadelphia. The Assembly now had time to deal with the streets following the defeat of the French out near Pittsburgh in 1758 and the relative peace of the 1760s. This act opened by stating the problem. The paving of streets, lanes, and alleys of the city of Philadelphia was either, quote, neglected or imperfectly or badly performed, leaving them deep and miry and almost impassable in wet seasons and very disagreeable in dry and windy weather. They believed that paving these streets and keeping them clean would greatly contribute to the preservation of the health of the people. The assembly would have been personally affected by the waves of yellow fever and smallpox that raged through Philadelphia in the 1740s and 50s. This included Franklin, who lost a son to smallpox. Cleaner streets meant healthier streets. The act appointed commissioners for paving and cleansing the streets, who would be elected by the freeholders. The commissioners were in charge of regulating the streets, managing the funds, and enforcing fines. And it prioritized the paving of the most used streets around the public markets. Business always came first in this commercial shipping port. Streets were to be divided into two zones. The cartway for carriages and wagons ran down the center of the street and on either side of the cartway were the footways to accommodate people walking. The responsibility for each zone was unique. The government commissioners were responsible for the pitching, paving, and cleaning of the cartway while individual landowners had to take charge of the footways along their property. The footway had to be built and maintained by the landowner or their tenant. The act stated that the footway be paved with either well-burnt bricks or square flat stone. And the footway had to be separated from the roadway by a row of wood posts. If you're looking to get a sense of what this old street would have looked like, there's a small section dating from about 1800 that's been preserved in the National Park Service Rose Garden near Independence Mall. And with this act, the city was also taking charge of trash collection. The commissioners were to employ people to clean the cartway of all paved streets, lanes, and alleys to remove the, quote, mud, dirt, and filth. These street cleaners were known as scavengers. Residents were responsible for keeping the footways clean by raking and sweeping the dirt into the cartway. Places of business were specifically called out for leaving their shavings, ashes, dung, or other waste on the public footway, or piling them in the street. Instead, the act stated that they had to store them somewhere else until it was time for general street cleaning, which was supposed to take place every Friday, unless it was icy or snowy. 
Just like today, waste from common housekeeping was taken away by the city. Anything else had to be paid to be carted away. So how did all of this legislation actually impact the street? It appears that these laws were somewhat successful in improving the streets. Both acts stayed in effect with various supplements and revisions until the end of the 1700s. Just before the revolution, a visitor to Philadelphia found the streets still poorly paved, but noted that the sidewalks were, quote, so well made that one walks on them as easily as in one's own room. Many of the suggested street improvements are visible in the famous prints by William Birch, which were published in 1800, though these were certainly nicer versions of reality. These prints do give a sense that Philadelphia's main streets were being treated with similar sidewalks and cobblestone streets. Philadelphia was starting to look like a city. In fact, Philadelphia had grown to be the biggest city in English-speaking North America by the 1760s. Settlements spread from Callow Hill Street in the north to Christian Street in the south, but didn't move much past 6th Street. The city now boasted three markets, the one on Market Street, a new market north of Vine, and another one south of Pine Street, which we now call Headhouse Square. The Delaware River was lined with over 60 wharves. Government was centered in the State House, now known as Independence Hall, which was completed in 1744. Beyond the city was open country. The nearby forests had nearly all been cleared for firewood, and there were no longer any nearby Native American communities. Peaceful coexistence with the Lenape had ended with the deceitful walking purchase of 1737. At this point, most of the Lenape had been pushed westward. This was Philadelphia, just before the American Revolution. So what should we take away from the history of Philadelphia streets in the 1700s? Is the history of Philly streets a tale of civic innovation with Benjamin Franklin as our hero? Or is the history of Philly streets written in the desperate inequality that developed within the system of bonded and enslaved labor and the city's many tiny alleys where the poor and unfree lived close by but worlds away from their wealthy neighbors? The truth is that the story is neither one or the other. It's both. And we can see both innovation and inequality written into the 1751 law that Franklin helped create. We've already discussed how the 1751 law brought some semblance of street lighting and night watchmen to Philadelphia streets. The law acknowledges the failures of a weak city government to provide safe streets for its residents. Franklin was beginning to think of cities in a more modern way, foreseeing that there were limits to what private individuals can do to solve complex urban problems in a comprehensive way. Especially when the problem deals with a space that is shared and used by everyone, like the street. But the law also established fines for people who damaged the public lamps and water pumps or interfered with the watch. And it had a particularly nasty section on punishing offenders of the act. Most offenders would just be subject to fines, but servants and enslaved black people would, on the first offense, be whipped with 21 lashes on a bare back and then forced to do hard labor on bread and water for three days. I don't know if these extreme punishments were ever carried out, but they certainly reveal the precarious and lowly status of servant and slave in Philadelphia, even though 18th century Philadelphia was built with their labor. So we can find both innovation and deeply entrenched inequality in our streets.
Thank you for listening to the Found in Philadelphia podcast. Please check out the podcast website to learn more, see some period maps, and find a list of my sources. This podcast was researched, written, hosted, recorded, and edited by me, Lori Ament. So all mistakes are my own. Surreal Tayeni is the audio engineer and head of Drexel University's Mad Dragon Recording Studios.